This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. You said to God, no other gods. You are my one and true savior. And I will never cheat on you by going back to some law or legalism or another God. So once we make the covenant with God to serve God and him alone, no other gods, then the promise we have is God penetrates us with new life and power. And as a result, we bear the fruit of righteousness by the seed that has been planted in us. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. My name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Today, we continue in the Ten Commandments series. Pastor Jeff has covered a lot in these messages. You can catch them all wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines. The first four commandments relate to our relationship with God, and number one is probably the most important. Here's Pastor Jeff as he begins a message on having no other gods before our Creator. I need to hit the ground running here because there's a lot to cover. I just want to give you a heads up that I'm dealing with commandment one. We've worked our way back from the Ten Commandments. We're on number one. But as I do the first commandment, no other gods, I want uh, to do it in a backdoor fashion where we apply it first and foremost to one of the primary issues of our day. And then you can extrapolate that out into areas of your own life. But let me hit the ground running by reading my text out of Proverbs 5. Here's what the Bible says. Now remember, this comes from the Bible. Okay? Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? Now, for you parents, you already recognize this is going to be a PG-13 sermon, but I will say nothing that's not already said in Scripture. And to make sure your thinking is along the same lines, let's do a little true and false to make sure you know what we've covered so far. So true and false, okay, number one, the first four commandments are about our relationship to God. True or false? That's true. Love God. Uh, No graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember God's holy day, the Sabbath. Number two, the second six commandments concern our relationship to each other. That's true. Don't kill, don't steal, don't covet, don't commit adultery. Three, the sixth commandment says no killing set for critters. Hillbilly Ten Commandments says exactly that, but the commandments in Exodus 20 actually say, thou shalt not kill. Uh, The Bible says, number five, actually number four, the seventh commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery unless it makes you very happy. So you do know that's false. Okay, that's good. Number five, the Bible says that sex between two people is okay as long as they love each other. Wow, so you do know that. Okay, all right. Six, the Bible says that sex between two people of the same sex is okay as long as they're monogamous. Notice how quiet it's getting the more we go into It's amazing, isn't it? And is that because you don't know the Bible or because you don't agree with the Bible? Number seven, 
The Bible says that each person should decide what is right in their own eyes, true or false. Oh, so you do agree with that. Okay. All right. Number nine, the Bible teaches that real freedom is not the absence of restriction. It actually does teach that real freedom is not the absence of restriction because sometimes your freedoms will be in uh, competition with each other. In other words, I want to live a long time, but I also want to eat McDonald's three times a day. So I can't do both. So true freedom brings some kind of restriction. Ten, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Did he say that? Yes, he did. All right, here's the next one. And this is a trick question, so if I were you, I probably wouldn't say it out loud. True or false, the world wrongly concludes that Christians are prudes when it comes to sex. Hmm. Does the world assume that we're prudes? Yeah. Is it true that we're prudes? D.H. Lawrence said this, the human body is only just coming to real life. With the Greeks, it gave a lovely flicker, then Plato killed it, then Christianity finished it off. But now the body is coming back to real life. And what D.H. Lawrence is doing there is he's identifying the Christian view of the body with Plato and the Greeks, because both believed and taught that the body is bad, the spirit is good, therefore sex, because it's bodily, is tainted, it drags you down to your animal nature, therefore if you want to be good and noble, avoid sex as much as possible. The question is, is that the biblical view of sex? No. That's antithetical to the Bible's position because the truth is, the Bible has a cosmic, glorious, magnificent view of sex. In Proverbs 5, this is a father giving advice to his son. He says, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. That's from the Bible. I didn't just write that for the sermon. And many Christians in the West are appalled that a pastor would talk about these things. And the reason is, is because they've been influenced, so they think, by the puritanical view of sex. That is, that you should never talk about it in the home or in the church. And the last place you should hear about it is behind the pulpit. But most historians now know that the puritanical view of sex is actually a myth. The Puritans, meaning pure, wanted to purify the church. It wanted to get the church back to biblical teaching. And then the more they saturated themselves with the topic of sex in the scripture, the more they realized that that the Bible does not talk about sex in a way that is dirty or unclean. As a matter of fact, the truth is the Puritans and all of their preaching and teachings and writings that have influenced our country, they became so explicit in their descriptions of sex in the Bible that in the 1950s, There was a man by the name of Edmund Morgan. He was a Puritan expert that taught at Yale University. He wanted to print some of the Puritan teachings about sex taken from the Bible. And his articles were banned because they were too graphic. Imagine that. The sermons of the Puritans were too racy for the liberal establishment. In fact, in the Puritan culture, when a married woman uh, discovered that her husband would not have sex with her, The Puritans knew this was not right, according to 1 Corinthians 7 and Proverbs 5. Let me read one to you. Uh, And man, if this is where you want to say amen, this is probably going to be your only opportunity. (laughs) The Bible says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. 
Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So if the wife in the Puritan communities would tell the elders of the church that the husband would not have sex with her, then typically they would knock on the door and they would drag him out into the street and flog him. Now, I'm sorry, but I cannot pass up this opportunity. I was just thinking about that. Would that really happen? I mean, knock on the door, I answer it, and there the Puritans are, we're the sex police, and you're in big trouble. (laughs) And they'd have to threaten to flog me to have sex with my wife. And notice already I've said the word sex more times in this one sermon than I have the whole time I've been here. The the point is that the world thinks that the church sees sex as dirty and fleshly, that we're a bunch of prudes who are anti-sex, and that we're obsessed with anti-sex campaigns. And the reason they think that is because the world is obsessed with sex, and like all addicts, you tend to project your obsessions onto others. So in other words, if you say to an alcoholic two times, hey, you're drinking too much, they'll say, why are you bringing it up all the time? Well, people are always asking me, And the church today, its position on all kinds of sexual issues. So the church finds itself responding to these questions in a way that usually people don't like. And so we don't want to keep talking about it. Not that we're opposed to it. I can promise you we're not. But you keep asking us about it, so it forces us to respond. And usually we are forced to respond in a way that says, thou shalt not. But the problem is that if you can't understand the positive about sex... You, you'll never be able to understand the negative. Let me say it again. If you can't understand the negative, let's reverse it. If you can't understand the negative, thou shalt not, until you understand the positive. Now, some of you during this message are going to be tempted to you say, I don't want this. And I'm going to ask you, would you hear me out? Okay, just listen. You're not going to be able to comprehend why sex outside of marriage is morally wrong until you understand the purpose of sex. Why God made it in the first place. And it wasn't just for procreation to have kids. It wasn't just for an enjoyable experience, although it is. There's actually deep imagery and mystery associated with it that the Bible goes on to communicate this sweet mystery time and time again. That means you and I need to make a serious attempt to understand it because the Bible definitely consistently teaches constantly that sex only works between one man and one woman in an exclusive, permanent, and complete covenant relationship called marriage. The Bible just simply tells you. It's not that God wants to be the big, bad, cosmic boss. It tells you that God is the one who made you. He knows your design. And he designed sex for a purpose and a reason. And you violate the design. It actually has detrimental impact. But once a physical, emotional, and economic commitment is made in the context of marriage then not only is sex encouraged, it's actually commanded. Thou shalt have great sex with thy spouse. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, before we get into the purpose of sex, let me, let me ask you how that sits with you. Does it bother you when I use the word sex and demonstrate how the Bible says it's a joy and a delight? Okay. Well, the Bible says, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. And the word in the Hebrew intoxication means to be ultimately captivated. It means that you're overwhelmed with the breasts of your wife. And the Bible says, not only is that okay, that's the way it should be. 
And the verbiage or the language is in reference to sexual fulfillment. Now, if that upsets you a little bit and you're surprised at the erotic language of the Bible, I'm, I'm only simply asking you to, to grapple with something for a moment. Maybe it's because you don't really understand biblical Christianity. Or maybe that you're laboring over a lot of stereotypes and that you actually have a lot to learn and maybe you should commit to reading the Bible. That maybe what you think about the Bible has been told to you by somebody else who hasn't read it or by an author in a book who doesn't really understand it, but you've never read it yourself. Because the, the reality is, if anything I've said so far offends you, then it proves that you're more under the influence of Plato and the Greeks than you are under the influence of the Spirit of God. And you're probably under the Greek notion of the body rather than the biblical notion of the body. And if you're still thinking, well, I don't care what you say, Pastor Jeff, I just don't think these things should be discussed in the Bible or in church, then my response would be, well, if, if you think you're more pure and holy than God, something's probably wrong. Because he talked about it in the Bible all the time. So the Bible constantly teaches right from the get-go. It's not something new from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Sex only works between one man and one woman in an exclusive, permanent, complete covenant relationship. And that's why Genesis 2, as early as creation, says, Therefore a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife. They become one flesh. It doesn't say you have the option of becoming one flesh. Have sex if you want to when you're married. No, it says it's an automatic result of a commitment and a covenant of longevity, that the, they become one flesh. The two of them, the man and his wife, were naked, but they felt no shame. Why would you feel no shame? Because when you've made an eternal covenant of longevity and commitment, economically, physically, spiritually, that you have said, this is the one woman or the one man for the rest of my life, God says then your next command is intimacy to penetrate each other physically as a result of the commitment that you've made for the rest of your life. Now, some of you think, okay, well, what's the purpose of sex? Let's get back to that. I'm more interested in that. Well, the purpose of sex, what if I told you that God gave us sex as a signpost to something far greater? Every time I hear somebody tell me, man, if I could only be married, I'd be happy. That person's never been married. <laughs> right? Because let me tell you something about marriage. Marriage was given to the human experience by God to make you like Jesus. Because if you don't learn forgiveness and grace and mercy and unconditional love, if you don't learn to have the goods, all the goods on somebody and still love them, You'll never stay married. It'll end. So marriage is something God ordained to give you a little taste of his experience with you. He's going to love you even though he has all the goods on you. You're going to be naked before God all your life, and he's still going to love you and pursue you. Even in those seasons when you think or feel he's abandoned you, and even when you abandon him, he's right there. That's the kind of love God has for you. And so he gives you marriage to conform you to the image of Christ. He gives you children to drive you crazy. <laughs> God gives you children so that you will know storge, which is the word for parental love. God establishes that in the human experience. I wish we had time to deal with this, but God establishes that in the human experience so that you will know what his love for you is like. You would have no clue about the love of God until you have a child that does everything wrong and you still love him.
And then God gives us sex as a signpost to something that is almost unbelievable. And I want to walk you through it quickly, okay? Let's start with Romans 7, where the Apostle Paul uses sex as a metaphor to our relationship with Christ. In the context, he's talking about a woman whose husband has died. So he says, so then, if this woman has sexual relationships with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law, and it's not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Isn't that interesting? You died to the law, your old lover, through the body of Christ. You have a new lover that you might belong to another, Christ, to him who was raised from the dead, just in case you misunderstand who he's talking about, in order that we might bear the fruit of God. Do you realize what he's saying all through the Bible? The believer is the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. Presently, you and I have been joined to Christ. We're partakers of the divine nature. And once we make that covenant with God and he with us, he penetrates us with his spirit, which is what Paul means when he says in Galatians 2, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. So once we make the covenant with God to serve God and him alone, no other gods, then the promise that we have, and only God knows when our heart is right, then the promise we have is God penetrates us with new life and power. And as a result, we bear the fruit of righteousness by the seed that has been planted in us. Do you see the analogy? Paul is simply saying, for those who've received Jesus, you've entered into a covenant relationship if you were serious about it. And you said to God, no other gods, you are my one and true savior. And I will never cheat on you by going back to some law or legalism or another God, my ultimate loyalty will be with you. And only in the covenant and commitment does Christ enter in. And once he enters, he never leaves you or forsakes you. Jesus will never say to you, you know what? Let's you and I have an open relationship. If you want to go back and partner up again with the law, I'm good with that. I'll be here when you get back. If you want to go and enter into intimacy with some other God, that's cool. I'll be here when you get back. You can just kind of skip and hop around. No. The Bible says that God says until you're fully and completely committed to him, he is not going to penetrate you with his spirit. And once you make the decision to be fully and committed to him, you can be naked and unashamed. He'll have all the goods on you, but you're saved by grace through faith. Now, keep going. Let's keep going. This gets so deep. So deep that Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is, uh, is love. Now, stay with me here. What's he talking about that we see something now partially, but one day we're going to see it in full? I was taught when I went to seminary that now we see God in part, but one day we'll see him in full. Problem is, it doesn't hold, that does not hold true structurally. In the original language, it's not about him. There's no him in the language. And we're never going to see God completely because we're not God. We only see God in the way he chooses to reveal himself to us. But there will always be a separation between us and God where knowledge is concerned, even in heaven. So what is it that we see partially now? but we're going to one day see full. Let me describe it to you like this, all right? So you're in line. It's, uh, it's the day of the Lord. And you're in line, and you're being greeted by Jesus. Okay, so you're in line right behind Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, because <laughs> that's where you think you'll be. 
And the closer you get to Jesus, and you can't see Jesus. You, see, you know it's Jesus, but his back is turned against you, so you don't see his face. And the closer you get to Jesus on that day, you're going to start to get a little nervous because you're going to realize, man, I was so excited to see him, but now I realize you're going to start thinking of all the wrong stuff you did in your life. And suddenly you're going to be like, Peter, go away from me. I'm a sinful man or I'm a sinful woman. Paul writes language in scripture, and I wish we could deal with every text. Maybe one day we will. But he writes in such a way as to try to communicate to you that when you're in that line, suddenly Jesus is going to turn around and you're going to see his face for the first time. And you know what's going to happen to you? It's going to melt your heart because suddenly you're going to realize that all those times you thought he had abandoned you, he was with you. All those times when you didn't obey him and you thought he didn't love you anymore, he loved you still. Even in those times when you weren't pursuing him, he was pursuing you. And suddenly, all those sins in your life and those shortcomings that you think somehow stifled your relationship, you're going to see the look in his eye and you're going to realize, man, I was really loved the whole time. He was really faithful. He really did love me. His passion and desire for me never wavered, even though mine for him did. And it's going to overwhelm you. And the soul, any destruction or disintegration that has happened, suddenly your soul is going to be completely healed because that's what it's been looking for all of its life, to be totally exposed to somebody and yet for them to love you still. And then he takes that language and some of, you, some of you know a little bit of glimpse of what this is like. Have you ever come to church and for some reason, you can't really explain it, but it was just really meaningful to you. The songs and the words spoke to you. The pastor actually had a relevant sermon and all of those things happened to you and suddenly you were just overwhelmed and you felt like God was like right here. You almost felt like you were sitting on his lap and you wish that happened all the time, but those moments are fleeting, aren't they? The most intense worship I've ever had is when my mom died, the weekend following my mom is gone. I lost my sense of home and belonging. And then I came to church and it's like on the way in, I heard a song and it was like God chose the song directly for me to say to me two things. Number one, your mom is with me and she doesn't want to come back to you. <laughs> number two, number two, I will hold you and I will love you and I will walk you through this. And suddenly that entire service, I couldn't sing two words without just weeping because suddenly Jesus revealed the depth and the width and the height of his love that I'd never assumed. We have, all of us have those moments when you've been praying for something for a long time and you're just so grateful that God has answered some prayer with your children or with your spouse or with your family and you're just overwhelmed and you just feel God, you wish it was like that all the time, but it's not. And the Bible says one day it's going to be like that every moment of every day. You're going to feel so loved and so valued that there's going to be such a healing in your soul. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is ultimately about. Love. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. His promises are true. Now here's the beauty of it. The language that Paul uses is when you're seeing Jesus for that first time, his face, you're going to have a climactic experience. It's almost like, man, that's what I've been waiting for all my life. To know that God has all the goods on you and he's never for one second stopped loving you. 
You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Surely someone who has a different sexual orientation or a different sexual temptation that I do, surely we can love each other and put our arms around each other and say, look, I know this is real for you, but I want to help you. I love you. I want to be here for you. And I know there may be moments of failure, but I'm still going to be here to coach you along and forgive you as God has forgiven you. And you can forgive me as God has forgiven me. But together, we're going to keep marching on toward holiness. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.